economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell, and my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael. All right, so today, uh, I think I was sitting in church thinking about barriers to entry um, <laughs> into uh, its ties. Which with... is very common for all of us. <laughs> there might have been a barrier that day for me, but... Uh, so yeah, is uh, uh, piety as a barrier to entry is is what I was thinking about. Um, so let me give you a little background for starters on in economics, a barrier to entry um, is usually pertaining to markets. Um, so in a competitive market, there are no barriers to entry. It's pretty easy to start a business and to exit um, if your business isn't doing too well. So you kind of have this free flowing of uh, startups that help keep existing businesses in check, perhaps, and other things. Whereas in uh, monopoly and oligopoly, where we have more concentrated numbers of firms, there can be uh, barriers to entry. So it, it's difficult to get started in that industry. That could be due to some prohibitively high cost of entry. So if you want to go compete with uh, Boeing and Airbus in making airplanes, you know, who knows how many billions you need to, to start up an airplane making business. Um, so there could be some high entry costs, could be some barriers that are created by government through uh, government regulation, possibly environmental standards if they were high enough that there's, it makes it more difficult to start in that particular industry, or maybe there's a limited number of, of companies that are allowed to compete in a particular industry, maybe in different countries. So uh, government involvement in markets can create a barrier to entry. Uh, probably the classic example would be uh, the use of patents. Uh, where if you come up with a great idea, the government grants you a barrier to entry. Nobody else can copy that idea for a period of time. But after that time expires, I think uh, Viagra was actually the last one to go off the list here of one of the more famous uh, patents. And immediately there was a number of knockoffs uh, coming on the market. Not that I have any personal experience with that particular uh, product, but that's what I read about. So, so where I was going with this in terms of Christianity was whether possibly a non-believer or somebody who's just kind of on the sidelines with a vague concern or care about God and maybe they kind of believe in God but they kind of don't and and whether uh, somebody's piety leads to that being a barrier to them investigating Christianity. So uh, I think Levi pulled up a definition of piety, and then I might expound from there. But what do you got, Levi? Yeah, so it says uh, the quality of being religious or reverent. And so, you know, I could definitely see what you're saying is certain practices or, uh, you know, motions or movements or things uh, that we do uh, in religious practice being, I guess, part of that. There would be, you know, activities or things like that, that are reverent or are religious in nature. So it's yeah. part of the ceremony of things. <clears throat> right. And, and there's different customs and traditions among different Christian faiths too. And so a part of me is thinking, does a non-believer kind of look at 
what they think Christians do or what they think Christians need to do and the way they live their life and the way they behave, does that ever act as a, as a barrier to them saying, I don't want to be one of those people that feels they have to go to church every Sunday. And even, even if we expand this beyond Christianity, Muslims praying uh, the five times a day and, you know, what other, other types of faith probably sticking more around Christianity, but uh, nonetheless. So I kind of thought I'd throw it out to uh, you guys to see if, if you've come up with any of those thoughts of behaviors by maybe Christian traditions being pious and maybe that is being a turnoff. So I thought of this example today just because I went to a Catholic wedding this weekend. Oh. But one of the things that I noticed, and I've, I've gone to a couple Catholic services, but I, I'm Protestant, non-denominational. And it's, it's interesting to go somewhere where there's like set phrases, set words used in certain situations. And if you're new to the scene, then you don't know what to say and when to say it like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I think mostly Catholic when that, when that comes to mind, but definitely going there and not feeling like you fit in, like you, you know, what's going on kind of makes it, I think, difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example of that. And it, uh, what's funny is I think different Catholic churches, the one I grew up in uh, had a, a bulletin that you followed and you had the responses there, but then I went to other churches where there's kind of no responses and you just, other people know the, know the routine, but yeah, I, I think that's a, an example of that. Well, so I, I've only been in, I think, one parish in my experience that doesn't have sort of the standard two-book missile and, and music selection. And so it's definitely there, but, you know, it's something that, you know, it's, it's much easier if you're sitting with someone yeah. who does know what's going on. And, and, you know, I mean, I can remember the, you know, I'm a convert to Catholicism and my, the first time I went to Mass, the bishop was there. And so the entire... <laughs> color guard for the all of the fourth degree knights in their uh, <laughs> plumy hats and swords and, and you're like, wow, do they do this every Sunday? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> oh man, what's going on here, you know? And, you know, so it was definitely a, a unique experience for me. You know, it was something that I, I guess I got interested in a little more later on, but, and I want to bring some of that in later, but one of the reactions I had to this was, you kind of outlined this, Russ, in in terms of, you know, the perfect competition type model that, you know, we often talk about in Econ 101 or maybe an intermediate Econ. Um, but then, as, you know, as we get further into things, we start talking about, you know, William Balmall's contestability and try to add a little bit more realism. Um, you know, Stiglitz, Joe Stiglitz, who I don't necessarily agree with on most things, he was certainly right that the, the Chicago boys were wrong that, uh, you know, perfect competition describes reality well enough. And um, I, I would definitely say that, you know, sort of not monopoly, but competitive monopolistic competition or, or Balmol's uh, contestable markets are more realistic. Mm -hmm. And so what, what it makes me think of is sort of artificial versus natural barriers to entry. And so, yeah. you know, we would say that a natural barrier to entry might be that, you know, well, it's just um, really difficult to acquire the knowledge to be to be able to compete in an industry, right? And so that's just sort of unavoidable. But an artificial barrier to entry might be something like, you know, a government licensure or something like that, which may have a good reason for it, and we can debate that another time. 
but it certainly functions as a barrier to entry. It keeps, it's a fixed cost. It keeps people out of, of an industry. And so I think maybe when you, we're talking about this, you know, we think about kind of the way people or the reason why we would have these, I guess we're calling them pieties or something like that. I mean, as a Catholic, I would say maybe something like a sacramental or something. Why, why do we have these things? And, you know, as I think about sort of what's left of more traditional times now in modernity, you know, if you win a sporting event, do we just say, hey, you got first place, go home? No, we have a, a trophy or we have a, a medal, right? And we have a ceremony for that. And we have the three, the three stair thing and all of that. And yeah, is all of that a sort of a piety in a sense? Sure. But it's part of the, it's part of our human so experience. Kind of the, the pageantry is. Sure. Well, and, and I think of, right. I think of our industry, right? We're in academia. The stuff that we wear with the hat and the robe, I mean, that's the 15th century or 12th century clothing. Um, you know, we have the tassel and when you, when you graduate, you walk across the stage and we put the tassel on the other side. If you have a master's degree, you get a hood, you know, all the PhD people wear a certain color. And then outside of things like that, you know, so we have certain times of the day when we eat meals, uh, certain times of the day when we want to work. And those are different across different cultures. You know, we don't have siestas in the U.S. We have, you know, we have siestas in uh, Central and South America. And it just seems to me like that there might be a good reason for these sorts of things that, yeah, it does maybe create a barrier to entry, but to the extent that it does, maybe there's a certain naturalness to it. Like it's, it is more part of that normal process. And, 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 and I would say in mass, you know, it, one of the things about those prayers is once you get them down, you can literally go to mass anywhere in the world. And the, the procedure is the same, you know, they're going to be in different languages or you're going to hear a different homily, but you know, the steps of the process are the same. And so it sort of creates a unity to the whole thing. Yeah. And, and my, part of some of my focus is, was thinking people outside a church that sure. are Christians or claim to be Christians, yeah, not yeah. just in church too, but yeah, that's, Jacob? Uh, yeah, I kind of, it's just a question for you two, um, your thoughts on this. So do you think having Christian values when you actually get to the marketplace her, uh, makes it harder to be competitive? Like, for example, for a barrier to entry, if you don't have maybe these religious values, you can kind of skip over some of the red tape or kind of do some things that Christians <laughs> wouldn't do. So do you think that puts you at a disadvantage? Or, I mean, once you're in the marketplace, say you take Sunday off to observe your religious belief, does that put you you know, at a disadvantage to your competitors. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't think it does. I, I think you've got a big advantage if you love thy neighbor as yourself. If you've got that service mindset, I think it can be an advantage. I think if the, where it gets tricky is if there's not these underlying fundamentals that we've talked about on other podcasts of, of a healthy rule of law, you know, absent of corrupt government, absent of other forms of corruption, if we've had if we have a decent rule of the games, we have a decent police system, we got a decent court system to support those freedoms that we have, then I think your Christian values should actually help you more than hurt you. Because I think fraud and deceit are short-term ways to get profit and might be profitable in the short term, but in the long run, Enron blows up and other deceit and fraud turns up eventually and it might have might have taken years right so then you get then you do get some short-term problems where maybe that's enough to put the 
the Christian business person out of business because the cheat was able to persist on for three to four years and the Christian was able to hang on for a couple of years and then ultimately was driven out of business because of whatever they were doing wrong wasn't being caught or maybe they were even within the law. I don't know if I can come up with a great example off the top of my head, but if they were within the law uh, with what they were doing, but they weren't. So, I, I mean, I, I think that's a good point. And I think what's maybe underlying what you're saying. So if I can summarize real quick. So you're saying that if we behave in a, <clears throat> if we behave in a sort of a Christian manner, then, you know, maybe we have a short term loss to someone who's not behaving that way, but then, you know, in the long run things will work out for us, hopefully. Uh, and, and, and that's contingent on sort of the, you know, the rules of the game favor that. And, and I would say that part of that is because the rules of the game, at least in the West, are mainly written from a Christian perspective. And so the rules of the game are set up so that if you behave that way, you're going to be a little more successful, right? So if you think, for instance, if you, if you live in a more traditional Muslim society, you would not be allowed to explicitly charge interest on loans, Right. And so right. someone, someone would be able to charge interest on a loan. If, if they did that, you know, they might get ahead for a while, but eventually sort of the police are going to catch them or, or, you know, whatever, someone's going to catch up with that. And then the people that are following the rules, okay, they might not have made that money for that short period of time, but then they would be, you know, in for a fine or whatever the punishment would be um, afterward. And so I would say that the reason why you, you are better off in the long run in that case is because the rules of the game are set up. To, to fit that Christian worldview. Yeah, I got, I got one that came to mind on maybe you're a corner store and you have the opportunity to sell alcohol and cigarettes, but your particular faith, I'm thinking of the Baptists off the top of my head, but uh, strictly no alcohol, no cigarettes is, is what you believe is, is right. And so by you not offering alcohol and cigarettes, business kind of drifts over to the other corner store that has that stuff. And so you're not able to compete as well. And maybe long-term that doesn't allow your business to succeed. But on the flip side, so that might could be a disadvantage right. where you're staying within the law, right? But, but your faith. So, I mean, that's kind of driving that Christian business person to maybe do a different industry anyway. Uh, maybe they, they wouldn't choose that. But then if all of a sudden they're, they converted and they feel that, oh my gosh, all this is wrong. Of course, if they had a successful business, they could just sell it to somebody else right. and let it go. So I think other faith traditions though, within Christianity, and this is kind of what I was touching on, might be nothing wrong with selling alcohol and cigarettes. And, and let me bring in pornography for fun. Suppose that that's pretty well across the board that maybe that's not the, the best thing to be advocating. Does a Christian miss out on some witnessing opportunities by not supplying some things that might be against their faith? So let's say the foot traffic at a store that offers and all the let's just say all the competitors are often pornography. And I'm, when I say pornography, I'm not talking videos. I'm just thinking magazines or something. But so all kinds of magazines, because we know there's plenty of things in magazines. And now with uh, legalization of marijuana, there might be the Get High magazine or High in the Rockies or whatever. <laughs> I'm just making those names up. That would be kind of a good name, actually. Right? Um, <laughs> I, I had this shirt when I was little that said, 
and I thought it was so cool. I was 13, and we went to Colorado, and it was get high on the Rockies. <laughs> and so there was, there was a Colorado shirt that said, and I just thought I was so cool wearing that around because it was such a little edgy play on words. So if they have these things at their shops supporting freedom, right, that who am I to judge that somebody coming in that th this is wrong? It might be wrong for me personally, but again, maybe I support uh, individual freedom. And then that allows maybe a casual conversation that somebody comes in and says, how can you sell these magazines? You know, you claim to be some Christian and you know, maybe it gives you an opportunity to say, well, why do you feel that way? You know, and then all of a sudden you have a chance to witness your faith to somebody. Just throwing that out there as, as one example of where I think if we run a tight line of being pious at all times or putting on the perception that I'm a good little Christian who's sin-free, which you're not, I, that I can guarantee all of our listeners, you are not sin-free. Um, I think I'm pretty safe in saying that. I think I got good biblical support on that. But yet we have this perception that maybe you're being a hypocrite if you're doing some of those activities. And, and that's kind of where I wanted to bring this discussion around to, that that, to me, is completely missing the boat um, on what it has. So it's not all about whoever can live the most pious life and, and come as close as possible to being sin-free wins. Woohoo! I win because I'm I'm the closest, I've really, we talked about the monastery and, and nuns and, and uh, monks living that isolated life, if, if somehow that's winning the game. And I, I think there's different faith traditions who feel different there. And so that's ultimately where maybe even after the break, we can get into that more. But uh, any thoughts on that? On I guess if we want to talk pornography, alcohol, and cigarettes? <laughs> well, I think there's certainly a, a line there. So you said, you said one of the comments you made was, you know, who am I to judge, right? And you're talking about, and so I think, you know, the line there is, okay, well, we aren't to judge people, but we can certainly judge actions, right? And so, I mean, in theory, we, we at least are supposed to have the knowledge to be able to discern if something is good or bad. And I would say that there's certainly, to some extent, this, this sort of thing, so I mean, certainly... I would, I would certainly not say that Christianity says that, you know, morality is subjective. I would hope we aren't going to go that way, but that. How can, how can we judge actions without judging people though? Well, because they're separate, right? So like, well, I, I agree, but I just want to see where you're yeah, going yeah. with that. Well, I, yeah. yeah. So what I'm saying is that a person, you know, is an infinitely valuable creature made in God's image. And what they do is their actions. And so, Yes, people, the very fact that people can turn away from sin, right? So the fact that we have the Beatitudes, the fact that there are, there is, there is the parables and, and things like this that, you know, like, the, for instance, the, the prodigal son, right? So the son, you know, went away and did all this horrible stuff, and then he came back. And the point is that he came back to open arms, right? right? And so, but he had to, but he had to, to make the conscious choice to turn away from that life and come back. And of course, when he came back, he had everything that the other brother had too. And the other brother was not happy about that. Right. But the point is that he can and did have free will and make that choice. And so when we're talking about, you know, should I put myself into a situation where, as, as a Catholic, we say, you know, the, the near occasion of sin, right? So I would say that it's kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So if you're, if you're a former alcoholic, 
your friends and family should certainly keep you from drinking at all, right? Because, I mean, this is just sort of the state of the, the, the way things go, right? So you keep, you keep people who are former alcoholics from drinking at all, because if they do, they're going to fall off the wagon. And so <laughs> what I would say is that certainly there are things that you could not participate in at all because they're bad. So if, if we're going to have like a, a murder park, you know, a murder, a murder game, you know, okay, well, that's certainly not acceptable. And then there will be things that I don't have a great temptation with certain things. And so I can maybe going to a bar, right? So it would certainly be wrong, I guess, from a Catholic perspective to get drunk, but I can go to a bar. I can hang with my friends and have a couple drinks. But if I'm just using your name, Jacob, if Jacob is a, is a potential alcoholic and he's sort of very, he knows that in the past he has been very prone to drinking too much, then it might be better for him that, you know, so his individual behavior might be different than mine based on what tempts us more. But there's certainly a responsibility to avoid the near occasion of sin, I would say that way. And even if, you know, it creates, you know, even if it would open up an opportunity for you, well, you know, you got to weigh it out. You know, the, yeah. the benefits of that might be much less than the cost. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I'm going to just throw a question out there that we'll come back from break on. So I don't want to leave the prodigal son too soon. So did he turn or did God turn him? We'll, uh, we'll pick up there after break. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at courtneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysex.org. There you will find our events, blogs, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Courtney Institute for updates on our activities and research. So I kind of left things uh, at that. Did he turn or did God turn him? So where I'm thinking on this or where my brain is at is, did he have to turn or did he have some sort of revelation or experience to where God helped him turn? So and then he came back, and then furthermore, once he came back with the open arms and he felt the grace, right? So I think 
the prodigal son is a story of grace that even though you were lousy and did some bad stuff and your other son in a lot of ways merited other things, you were still open arms and even to the point of uh, didn't they take the, the cat, the fattened calf and uh, had it as part of the party to welcome the son back. So, and once he was there, did he have to be as good as the other son? I'm reading into the story, by the way, of course. Uh, you know, what does his life need to look like when he came back? Does he have the pressure of being just as good as his brother in order to stay in good graces? Or did he just get it? Yeah, so I mean, I would say that, you know, there's, you could go pretty far with the philosophy on this because, like I was saying before, and I, I think I've mentioned this book before, um, but Ed Fazer's book, By Proofs of the Existence of God, is really, I think it's a really good book, and it really makes a very clear argument. And, and so in the book, you know, you learn about contingency and, uh, you know, existence and things like that. It's very, uh, you know, deep philosophical stuff. And so, yeah, certainly to the extent that everything that is contingent on God, who is existence itself, right? God is pure existence. And so, yeah, that's why we, you know, we say thank you, God, for the, the food we eat and, and the sun and the moon and the stars and everything like that, right? So, yeah, all that stuff is contingent on God because God is the efficient cause, right? Uh, very St. Thomas Aquinas kind of stuff. And so I would say that, of course, yes, he, the son chose, you know, he, he would not have been able to choose good if good did not exist and good could not exist without God, right? And certainly, yes, it could be that God, you know, tapped him on the shoulder or whatever, but if we have free will, we can make choices. I mean, Jesus told people, you know, go and sin no more. I mean, so there's, I just, I, I just yeah. don't see how if we don't have free will, then, then none of the Bible makes any sense, but we do have free will. Then it makes sense that you can make a good choice. You can either, and yes, is that choice contingent on God? Certainly. Yeah. So the bondage of the will, if you want to put that in the show notes from Luther again, I brought it up before because I, I find that this is the most difficult thing it, it was difficult for me to slowly absorb, and I'm not sure I'm 100% there. But you can't choose God. Um, you can't choose your own salvation. You can't save yourself. That all comes from God through your faith. So your most righteous deeds are filthy rags to God. So you have free will to not choose God. So in the way that then I can I have can I eat Cheerios this morning or can I eat a bowl of life cereal? Yeah, we got all those choices. That that's no big deal. But Luther's big argument. Luther was a monk, and he was like the best monk of all of the Catholic monks. Like he was the most pious. Is what part of what bring this back to following all the rules and but no matter how hard he tried and how well he did, he never got there. He never got it. It was never the thing. Like it was, I like knowledge that he knew it was enough. And so that's ultimately when he started leading down the path of turning. That's not even the right way to live. I don't think God wants us to live that way, but rather to engage with society and be okay with the fact that I'm bound to sin you are going to sin. And so this kind of ties me back to this whole episode of a person on the outside looking in, are they worried about what they need to do once they 
and maybe in their minds choose Christianity or God chooses them or whatever as if they are they a little afraid because frankly they don't like it they're uncomfortable when somebody before Thanksgiving gets into a five-minute prayer and drags on while you're all starving they don't like when people walk around with a big cross on their chest. I'm not, I'm not being against that, but I'm just saying that's some of the piety that I'm talking about. Some of the actions that we see are some of our fellow Christians who are, I'm not saying they shouldn't not do that, but do, do outsiders look at that and say, I don't see how I could ever be that person and behave that way because I'm so messed up with my own stuff and I'm kind of comfortable with my sins. Um, do I have to look and walk and talk that way if I become a Christian? Does that somehow create a barrier? And I'm ultimately circling around saying that God's going to do some turning for you. I think it was maybe Romans 6 or 8 of you don't have to necessarily worry about that, but also realize you're going to continue to sin and that you've, you've got the, uh, the grace to allow you to stay in the faith that you can continue to be a sinner, but yet be a Christian. And I'll shut up. So I, yeah, I mean, so the, <laughs> the first thing, the first thing I would say is I, I don't, I, I guess I just don't, I don't understand why there is this different, like, I just think that, that what Luther was saying was just incoherent because I, I think maybe to the extent that he just, maybe he didn't understand the the I guess would be the Catholic argument here is that it's not that I personally am good it's that I can choose to turn to good but and and again not that any good decision I make is only me but then I would say you know so going in to, any micro circumstance I I totally agree with you you can choose to should I do the bad thing should I not do the bad thing mm-hmm. I'm going to choose to do the good thing. But can you always choose good? You can't always. Certainly not always. And that's part of Luther's argument. From a logic, from a logical standpoint, you can't save yourself. You always yeah, yeah. need to turn to Christ. Right. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, I don't know who the heck he's arguing with. That's my thing. Is I I, I don't know who that would be an argument against. But uh, so I guess the other the other point that I would make is that it might be difficult for people to that might be a barrier to entry to them, but. I think there's two things there. So number one, it's a challenge, right? And so, you know, sloth is one of the seven deadly sins, right? The seven cardinal sins, because, you know, if we don't, if we don't aspire to improve, then, you know, we're going to inevitably go the other direction. And so I think I see it as a challenge. And I think people, when they're in the right frame of mind would see it that way. But the other thing is, is if, you know, and, and, and you made it, you made it clear that you're not saying you should change these things just because of people, um, because it presents a barrier to them. But, but that's my thing is like, if it, you know, if we're just going to constantly compromise w- with people who disagree with us on everything, then eventually we're just going to become indistinguishable. And I think what's really interesting just within the Catholic community is that it's kind of a funny thing where the more traditional parishes that are, uh, that are, you know, incorporating the older mass and that have a lot more of this kind of show and, you know, really make a bigger deal about expectations and things like that. Those parishes are growing. They have tons and tons of vocations. They have priests all over the place. Their seminaries are full. And this is in places, I mean, you go to go to Lincoln, Nebraska, for instance. Yeah, I think people are craving some of that formality. 
Well, and, and they, 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 that structure, it, they sure. want that structure. And, and I think it, I think part of what it is, is it, is it becomes more and more uh, distinct from our, our typical day, you know, and one of the changes uh, on the break, Jacob was talking about some of the changes that were made. Uh, they were just really sort of translation clarifications from the Latin for the English mass several years ago, you know, and one of them was to well, one of the, one of the Eucharistic prayers was changed from cup to chalice. And I think that's a good example where, okay, well, that's a pretty fancy word, chalice, you know, and it's like, well, why are you saying chalice? Why can't you just say cup? And it's like, well, because, yeah, it may be a cup, but it's a special cup. And so it's, you know, it's something that we should set that apart. I mean, that's the definition of holy, right? It's set apart. So to me, I see it as a good thing. And, and if, uh, you know, I think some of the, I read an article a while back, and I don't know if I'll be able to dig it up from the show notes, but they're talking about how in the U.S., the the nuns or the, the, the non-religious types. Oh, right. Um, yeah, N-O-N-E-S. 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 Yeah. Not, my, not, yeah. not, our, nuns, not our sisters, yeah. the Flaming nuns. But, nuns. Yeah. yeah, but, um, you know, that, that, that group is growing. And, and, you know, to some extent, Christians are shrinking. But the funny thing is that if you, the polls show that that group that is very serious about their faith is growing, even though it's a small group. And so that at some point, what they're projecting is that, you're, you're going to see a lot of the people that are sort of somewhat attached to religion fall into either the, you know, none of the above category or become part of that small group that is, you know, that sees their faith as a huge part of their life. And so we're, we're, we're sort of trending towards that separation, whereas now we kind of have this sort of gray area in, be, in between. Um, that gray area is going to sort of move. So I, I think it's the, the part that I'm trying to tease out a little bit is, is it, you know, living in fear, um, having that burden of always being kind of tempted, maybe the, the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other, is something Luther, I guess, was protesting in the sense that since you can't always choose good, and I, I think there's people who leave the faith because that burden is too great for a sinful person. And the guilt that comes along, I remember a, a colleague of ours talking about Catholic guilt uh, came to mind. I don't, I don't think, I think that goes beyond Catholicism, but having that pressure, I guess, to always make the right choice. And maybe you last, you become a Christian, you're saved and you last one year, two years, or three years or four years. But then eventually it's like, uh, you know, do you eventually kind of say, I'm done with that. You know, maybe something, my brother had something happen at his church where the leader of the church changed. And it's like, is this really all it's cracked up to be? You know, is, is that this, this is just, people are hurting each other. There's, there's a hypocrite over here and that. And, and so Luther's message of true freedom, I think um, is something that I think I'm starting to better understand, which is maybe questionable of not worrying about that. Um, repent your sins when you do them, but don't live your life always under pressure, whether it's social pressure or maybe other Christian friend pressure or family pressure or God pressure of just always, I think he knows you're going to sin. And again, you can make some choices and, and the law is laid down. But, you know, when Paul gives sign or a, a law that says, go and sin no more, right? I don't remember if he said that to the Corinthians or, or to the Romans, but go and sin no more. What, what does that mean? I can't fulfill that. Exactly. That, that's the point of 
we can't follow the law. You'll never be able to choose righteousness. You can't save yourself. So the reason the Bible has all of these to-do lists of the way you're supposed to behave is not for you to actually do them in perfection, but to rather show you that you are screwed without Christ. That it's to make it everything of like, I can do it. I can do it. You're looking at yourself, right? What are my abilities? I can choose good. I can, I can do the right thing. I can do this. But ultimately, you can't. You're going to fail. And that's what Lutherans, through the thread of the Bible being about law and gospel, anytime you read something like go and sin no more, or if you look at a woman with a lustful eye, you've already committed adultery. Oh, well, geez, there goes all the beer commercials at the, at the halftime show. I'm, I'm, uh, there, there's that one's done, right? So th- my point is that all of that is to make you look at Christ for help because you can't do it. You can't live a, a perfectly pious or righteous life. You can't save yourself. You need some help. Um, I was kind of, I mean, I heard you say something about how, you know, we feel pressured to not sin. I mean, that's kind of what I feel like one of my favorite things about, or why something I find comforting about Catholicism is it's not, I feel like I'm pressured not to, like the ability to go to confession, repent. I Mm -hmm. find that more comforting rather than is it a fear because I know I'm going to mess up. But so I know that there's something I can do to kind of, I guess not fix, rectify the problem or whatever, but you know, to do something rather than just feel pressured to avoid it again. I know there's something that I can do. Well, and I think, I think that it goes to part of what you're saying. I think at least something that I learned when I was in RCIA and my conversion process was, you know, it's a scrupulosity, you know, that this, this idea that you, that's you know, a fun word. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't think I've heard <laughs> that one before. Scrupulosity. <laughs> but it's, it's this idea Teach that, <laughs> yeah, it's this idea that you're, you're constantly concerned that everything you're doing is wrong. Yeah. Right. And so it's sort of like, I mean, I guess we would call it maybe anxiety or something yeah. like that yeah. too. Sure. But it's, it's this idea that like, oh my gosh, was that, was that the right move? Was this the wrong move? And, and, blah, 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 you know, and so you can certainly go way too far I think from a Catholic standpoint, you can certainly go way too far into that scrupulosity type of thing. But I think, you know, part of what we would say, in, in addition to, you know, Jacob's point about uh, confession and, and, you know, in part of the act of contrition, you know, at the end, it says, and I can't remember all the words because I always have to read it, but, um, you know, I, to, you know, I firmly intend with your help to sin no more and to avoid whatever leads me to sin. There we go. I remembered it. I firmly intend with your help, right? So I think it goes to kind of what you're saying, mm-hmm. to sin no more and to avoid whatever leads me to sin, right? And so it's, it's not just, yeah. you know, watching the Super Bowl commercials are a, are a problem for you, then you shouldn't watch them, you know? And so it's, uh, but I think, I think that's a good point, Jacob. And, and scrupulosity is definitely the other side, right? There's always... It's a balanced sort of thing. Yeah. You know, we don't want to be scrupulous, but we also don't want to just be sort of hedonistic. So, and that, that so. you're, I think we're starting to boil down to the, like, do I have to try? Do I have, do I have the power to try? You probably have the ability in some cases, but does the alcoholic have the ability to not ever drink again? Can they choose to not ever drink? We have cases that that happens, but does everybody fall into that category? How deep does that run in us that we could uh, not sin. And so the, with trying, through the help of God, through prayer, all of that, I'm not denying it all, by the way, that, that, that you can, with God, anything's possible type of thing. But ultimately, you won't avoid sinning. And there's confession and, and uh, you know, in the Lutheran tradition, you don't have to go straight to the priest to go through that process. You go straight to the, to the big man upstairs. 
but nonetheless, you, you can know that you're saved through these external ways of the church in the, in the Lutheran tradition with, with baptism and communion, uh, which I think the Catholic and the Lutherans actually share in, that, uh, in the communion blood and body of Christ. And then the word, having that dispensed to you on a Sunday is, is what you need to know that you're, you can move on another day to probably do another sin at some point. But there's really true freedom in that, that you don't have to live with the burden of being worried about choosing the wrong thing because you're going to screw up. And that's not an easy one to, to pick up, but that's probably uh, good unless there's any other last comments. Uh, I think uh, we can call this one a wrap in the book. So thank you all for uh, making it this long if you didn't. But if you didn't make it this long, then you don't even know that I'm saying this. And so uh, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute. And and uh, please uh, support us online if you like hearing more stuff like this. And, and uh, do email us or call a phone number. It's actually my phone here at the university at 785-248-2551. Uh, we'd like to have some episodes in the future uh, with some mailbag questions, whether we put a voice on online or if we just uh, go off of an email. But either way, that'll be fun for some future episodes. So on behalf of everyone here, be fruitful and multiply. Thank you.